Welcome to the Prison Post. This is our monthly policy edition hosted by CROP's Director of Business Development, Ken Oliver. As a former policy director himself, Ken invites guests who keep their fingers on the pulse of current legislation and how California's laws are both impacting currently and formerly incarcerated citizens. These thoughtful conversations provide insight into the direction that our state is moving and what we can do to help in mass incarceration while responsibly reforming our prison system. Welcome to the Prison Post Policy Hour. I'm Ken Oliver. Great to be here with all of you today. Um, today, I'm, I'm uh, esteemed to have uh, a great guest. Today, we have Esteban Nunez from ARC, uh, who's one of the leaders for directly impacted policy <clears throat> uh, work in the state. Uh, he's also a good friend of mine. Uh, welcome, Esteban. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. A pleasure to be here. Uh, of course, always, always love working, working alongside you and I love our conversation, so looking forward to it. Absolutely, great to have you. Uh, today, we're gonna to talk a little bit about uh, Esteban's story and, and what happened with uh, policy in the year 2020 and what we can kind of look forward to as we wrap up the year in 2021 uh, in criminal justice reform and see what the landscape is like. So Esteban, for those of you who don't have the pleasure of knowing you yet, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up and uh, how you got involved with criminal justice work to begin with? Yeah, so I um, was born in 1989, um, my, raised by, by my father and my mother. My mother is, is a nurse to this day. My father um, at the time uh, was an organizer, a union organizer, uh, now does, does some consulting. Um, but my father was very active uh, in, in the reform, in, in advocacy, um, you know, as it related to immigrants. Um, my mother was, was born in Mexico. Um, my father was raised in TJ, uh, Tijuana. Um, and so I really, I really got a lot of insight to what it looks like to organize, to what it means to uh, uh, enact change, what it means to really bring the people uh, who are impacted by them and empower them. Uh, and you know, for me, growing up uh, under under an activist, um, it, it was really enlightening. It was really enlightening to see um, how how change can be made by by the people. Um, but it was also troubling to see how. How, how much change we needed to, to make. Um, you know, for me, uh, Spanish was my first language. Um, in school, uh, I wanna say it was kindergarten or first grade, um, my teachers called my parents in, into class and, and told them if I didn't learn English, they would kick me out of school. This is around the time of um, uh, Prop 187, um, which, which allowed educators, doctors, uh, to notify ICE if they had any inclination that a that a child uh, was an immigrant and that that child would be immediately deported, um, and and so so I lost I lost I, I didn't my family only spoke English, um, and and I lost Spanish. Um, I grew up, you know, because I didn't know Spanish, I was kind of too white for the Mexicans, um, but but in school I was too Mexican for the whites, and so I never never necessarily had had a place where I felt like I fit in. Um, you know, my, my, I went to a Baptist school growing up, um, you know, was always pushed to the end of the line if I was late, uh, you know, was subjected to, to, to prejudice, I'll say. Um, and, I, and I had learned to just accept it as, as, as my normality, right? Um, and so I, I, I learned to stay out of the way. Um, you know, I was in college when I caught my case, uh, and I had a very very different perception of what the criminal justice system was um, and looked like. Um, you know, my case um, was was a group fight 
um, unfortunately, a, a young man lost his life in the fight. Um, I didn't know until the next day that, that somebody had died um, and, 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 and was terrified. You know, um, I strongly believe that our, our system um, was set up that you were innocent until proven guilty. Um, and that's not the case. You know, that's not how our system works. Um, you're guilty until you can prove yourself without a doubt uh, innocent, right? Um, and it's not always black and white. Um, and you know, I, I going through the criminal justice system, it really opened my eyes um, to the fallacies that we're told, you know, to 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 the to the to the to the, to the just the wrongdoings that happen, you know, on an everyday basis. Um, how numbers are thrown at people's uh, like 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 candy, right? But these are number. This is like numbers of uh, of your life, you know, um, and I. You know, I, I remember sitting in the hole when I was went in, um, I took a plea deal when I went in, um, I was in solitary confinement for, for, for three months. Um, I saw the daylight once I went to the yard once I got to shower once in the entire three months. Um, I was single cell. Um, and so I did a lot of introspective work in that time. Um, you know, well, what, 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 around what year, excuse me, if I can just interrupt, around what time frame was this? when you went to prison, because I think that's very important to talk about when you went into the system versus the landscape now. And a lot of yeah. listeners probably don't understand what the prison system looked like when you first went in. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So, uh, yeah, I caught my case in, in, in October 2009. I went into prison um, Cinco de Mayo 2010, uh, May 5th, 2010, um, and, and, you know, was, was in the hole um, from about May uh, uh, to June or July. Um, you know, and I and I remember thinking in the whole like this isn't this is this has got to be a fucking nightmare. You know, this this can't be this can't be the reality. My reality. <laughs> and, and and I'll never forget. You know, the moment that the, the the moment that I accepted it as my my reality, but also the moment uh, that I promised myself I would I would I would, I would change. Um, when I was in solitary, my mom came to visit me. My mom and dad for the first time. Um, and you know, I mean, you know, Ken, like you 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 go to it's behind glass. You're shackled. You know, um, I hadn't shaved in three months. I hadn't had a haircut in three months. Uh, you know, and I, I, I looked tore up, just to, to be honest. You know, and I and I tried to smile, uh, so my family wouldn't 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 see the devastation on my face, um, because I didn't want them to to bear the burden that I had to bear to bear. Right. Um, my father, I rem I'll never forget. His hair was riddled with gray hairs. You know, it, it almost like instantaneously had a head full of gray hairs. A um, lot of wrinkles on his face, like he had aged five years, um, and my mother just trembling, couldn't 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 stop trembling, and just uh, uh, was just distraught, you know, and broken. Um, and I saw the pain that I brought to my family, uh, and it was at that moment that I that I had promised myself um, that I would figure out what influenced my decision as a young as a nineteen year old man um, to to engage in a fight. Uh, that ultimately led to it to a young man losing his life, um, and 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 it was at that moment that I realized, like you know, it's not just me in this; like it's my family too, um, and, and the impact is so so it's such a ripple effect, you know, and uh, and it it really it really was a, was an awakening moment for me, you know. I, I can close my eyes and still um, picture it, picture that day as it had happened yesterday, um, and and. You know, when I was in the hole, and to that point, like when I was in the hole, uh, I started doing the introspective work. You know, it's not nothing else to do, right? Um, and, and 
you know, it's, it's crazy because uh, I, and I don't really share this widely, but I'm going to tell you, Ken, because I, and, and, you know, all those that, that, that follow this because, um, you know, I made a, I made a promise to you. I, I made a promise to your partner that, that I would, I would do this. Right. And um, when I was inside, I, it took a lot of, it took a lot of digging to figure out what had influenced my decision, you know, because um, I, I knew I wasn't that person. Like I'm the person you see today, you know, the kind hearted, gentle, loving, like authentic person, but I had to wear a mask growing up. Um, you know, I had to, I had to uh, try to be tough. And, and really what it was is when I was well, wait, a child. Can we, can, can we talk about that just a little bit? Because you said something that was very important right there that I just want to peel another layer off of. Because here you were, you're in Northern California. Your family, you have an activist family. I think at the time your father was in political life. So by all, by all appearances, you came from a, a solid background. You weren't enmeshed into the elements, so to speak. And then yet you still felt from pressures, external pressures, the need to designate yourself as a young man or identify yourself as a young man with this being tough, you know, hyper-masculinity, machismo, whatever you want to call it, uh, out there in the streets. And it seems to be a common theme, especially amongst gang members and other people that come from our communities, that as young boys, as young men, there seems to be this unspoken, intangible pressure to live up to this idealized uh, idea of what masculinity is. Uh, so can you just dive into that just a little bit about how you felt that and what that actually meant and how that actually, that mindset actually ended up leading you to uh, the time that you got arrested? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, you know, I, I it, it really, it really like it, it has to do with me never really feeling accepted with any group. You know, my family came from fucking nothing. I mean, my, my father uh, didn't have a job when I was growing up. You know, he was an activist going on protests. My mother worked two jobs as a nurse. Um, they both had filed for bankruptcy. You know, they, they've been divorced twice. Um, and, and, and so, you know, when my father um, made the career that he made for, for himself and for his family, um, he really he really did it from scratch, you know, and, and, and moving into, into that world. Um, I just didn't feel like I fit in with them. You know, I didn't, I didn't have the same, uh, background. I didn't have the same upbringing. Um, and so it was to me, uh, I just felt like, you know, I had to, I had to put on a facade, um, to, 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 I mean, l let's go deeper. The, the truth is that when I was, when I was, and, and I figured this out in prison and I would have taken this to the grave, you know, had I not uh, done the work. Um, when I was six years old, I was molested by my younger cousin in Mexico. Um, and and it was at that time, you know, I, I didn't know I was six. It wasn't until I had, you know, processed this with my mother uh, that she helped me put into perspective. I never had considered my age. Um, but, you know, it was, it was why I went to these extremes to, um, to wear a mask because I felt like I didn't defend myself when I was a child. Um, so I, ha so I went to an extreme to defend myself and defend the people around me, um, because, because I, because I had such an immense amount of pain, um, and such immense amount of guilt, uh, for not having done so as a, as a, as a, as a child, um, that I had promised myself in, in a weird way that it, it would almost make up for, um, make, make, make up for, for that, for that, that guilt, you know? Wow. I mean, you know, that, 
not only is that uh, very personal, it just it's humbling to hear you, you know, come on the stage with me and share that, you know, with the audience, what you went through, <clears throat> how it affected you. And uh, I just really appreciate you being open and authentic. It's, it's a true testament to who you are uh, as a man and as a human being that you were able to be authentic in that way and talk about these things because there's literally thousands and thousands of people inside the prison system, both men and women, who have gone through similar things and, and hide behind masks of shame, et cetera don't know how to process it, they haven't been given the space to process it. And, and what it causes is people usually to cause pain to others and, and continue the harm. Uh, interestingly enough, I was you know, on a call with a lady the other day and she's from uh, Antioch up here in Northern California. She now lives in North Carolina. <clears throat> she was talking about she had a best friend who had six children whose husband was a police officer in San Francisco and was molesting the kids, their own father. Uh, the boys and the girls. And the lady didn't know it, but the lady invited and accepted her friend and her six children into her home. And she had six kids. And the boys ended up while they were living with her and her six kids, molesting her two-year-old daughter. And, you know, she, she called them, she called the mother and told the mother, like, they had to leave and, you know, Authorities were called, but then when the authorities asked that she want to press charges, she she didn't have it in her heart to press charges against the boys because she understood what had happened to the boys from their father. So she 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 had enough grace in herself to want to see something better for the boys, even though they had victimized her two year old daughter. And I just thought it was a telling uh, a telling statement about her character, about who she was, the fact that she understood the cycle of pain causing pain. And so that's you know that that's that's a true testament to you that you're able to share that. And that you know you haven't. Uh, processed it that way that you processed it in this uh, healthy way. So thank you for that. Yeah, no, and, and I'll say um, to your point about how many, you know, the thousands of people that have experienced uh, childhood traumas inside, right, and have normalized it. Um, I was very fortunate to have the support system that I had, you know, had, had my mom not been around, uh, I just, I don't, I don't think I would have had the the, the foundation to process it, right, or, or the knowledge. Um, uh, to, to do so, especially in, in a prison fucking setting, right? Yeah. Like, um, yeah. because it's, 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 you know, it's, and, and that's where I think we fall short is we don't, um, we don't do enough, uh, to, to give people a safe space to, to do, to do the work. Like if we're really about rehabilitation, um, we got to give people the, the, the tools necessary, um, and, and the safe space necessary to do so. Right. Cause, cause it so, takes a lot of vulnerability to, to, to get into that place, you know, well, it's the culture of the joint, right? It's the concrete jungle. You know, it's almost like a kill or be killed mentality uh, in prison. And they're definitely, we haven't matured as a society or as a community yet to, to create that space really in the prison environment. We, we most definitely need to. So tie, tie that in with you being released. Tell people a little bit about your release and what happened with that, because I think that's important and why you decided to spend your life serving others and trying to make pathways for other individuals that suffered things similar to you and I and everybody listening. Yeah, you know, um, I don't think it's a surprise. My, my sentence got commuted um, to seven years when I was inside from 16 to seven. Um, at the, w when I got released, um, honestly, I was studying to be a mechanical engineer. Um, you know, I knew Scott Budnick uh, because he, he helped us get l distance learning programs in the, in the prisons uh, all throughout California, but specifically the one I was at. Um, he came to visit me uh, when I got released and offered me an internship um, with ARC to open their Sacramento office. 
you know, I, I actually uh, turned it down, to be honest, um, because I felt like I I wanted to fly under the radar. I didn't want to I didn't want people to know who I was. Um, I had even considered changing my name. Um, and but then he gave me a week. He told me, please, like, think about it. You know, in that week, um, I really saw how much prison had impacted me, um, you know, on, a, on an emotional level, on a mental level, on a physical level. Um, and I would I would walk into a room, into a restaurant and, and just completely withdraw. You know, I still sleep on one side of the bed. Um, but more importantly, what it was, that it, it was my, my old cellies that would call me or people inside that would call me. And they were really genuinely happy for me, um, but would ask, you know, how is it? What are you doing? And I just felt guilty. Um, I couldn't bring myself to, 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 to tell them. Like, I just thought, oh, it's cool. Um, and, I, and I remember thinking, like, this is fucked up. Like, this isn't right. Like, what makes me any different than them um, was because I just had uh, uh, advocates on, on my side, on the outside. Like, you know, if that's all it takes, then, then, then I'm going to be their advocate. You know, I'll be their voice. Um, and, and I promised myself that I would, that I would, um, and I haven't turned, turned back ever since, you know, um, for me, it's, it's about, um, undoing the wrongdoings that have been, ha that have occurred to people who, who were just like me in similar situations, just like me, um, who may never see the outside world again. And, and, and to me, it's just, these are human beings. Like, it's just wrong. It's not, it's, I, I, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night if I wasn't doing something, uh, in this, in this field. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about how you got into the policy aspect of it. There's a lot of uh, spaces and slots in the criminal justice reform uh, community. Uh, you uh, pathwayed into policy work. You're, you're one of the leading uh, policy people in the state for people that are directly impacted, a, a proximate leader. Uh, I'd like for you to tell everybody a little bit about how you got into policy and why it's important to be centralized in the conversation of policy, meaning people that are proximate to the problem and why that's so necessary. I, so at the time I was life coaching when I got into policy um, and it was really just, just me uh, hearing about the barriers that people were facing, the, the conditions that people were still living in. Um, and, and I, and I just felt like, you know, I have, I have, uh, you know, a name that, that rings bells in, in the, in the, in the capital, maybe not, you know, for the good, but it still it still gets some sort of recognition. You know, why not use that um, to to humanize an issue, right? And I think people in 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 politics, people in policy, live in this bubble. You know, they live in a bubble of of, of what you know they find to be reality, uh, and, and it's very different from the, from what actually occurs, right? Like they they read reports, and that's what they think is the reality. You know, it's it's a name on a piece of paper, um, and that's and and that's not. So so for me, it was like don't let me tell you uh, what it's like. Let this person tell you who just came home from it, right? Like, don't let me tell you how hard it is to get a job. Like, let this, let these 10 people tell you. Um, and it's, and it was the cute for me, it was just really, you know, bringing people who, who are impacted, um, most impacted by issues to the forefront of these efforts, because it's, it's, it's their leadership. That's really going to, that's really going to drive us to a solution. That's, that's, that's a real solution. Not, 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 a, a patch it solution. Um, and, and for me, that, that was the important piece of it. It's, it's about, you know, bringing those who, who are closest to the problem into the solutions because they are, they are the solutions. They know the solutions.
Absolutely. And then know the inadvertent effects, right? Like of, of, of things that, that, you know, pe normal or academics or, or other, I'm not gonna say normal people, academics <laughs> or other people, politicians may not think because uh, we've lived it, you know? Absolutely. Uh, amen to that. I appreciate that. Uh, something that we preach often about centering uh, the voices of the people that are directly impacted uh, versus people that are watching the sport from afar. Uh, you know, thank you for that. Uh, so, you know, it's been an unprecedented year in California. We've had COVID, we've had criminal justice reform, we've had releases from prison, we've had a lot of deaths of our brothers and sisters inside prison in the prison environment. Uh, for those people that don't know, tell us a little bit about what happened in 2020 from a policy perspective, the wins, the losses, um, and, and then we'll go into a little bit about what we can look forward to in 2021. Um, you know, 2020, uh, yeah, I mean, was a, was a, was a <laughs> unprecedented year. I mean, I don't even know how to start. I'll say, you know, we had, um, what we found to be progressive policies on the forefront of the year. Um, and, and, and those were, uh, a lot of them dropped off because of COVID, right? Like we, we, our, our effort, our ability to advocate was strained, um, at least to come within proximity of, of, of legislators and, and decision makers. Um, but we continued our, our work and you know, Ken, like as it relates to Prop 17, uh, formerly ACA 6, uh, there were a lot of essential workers who, who couldn't vote, who were out there working, risking their lives every day, um, just to make sure that that the functions of society just continued to run smoothly, yet couldn't vote on, on how, you know, the how money was being allocated, couldn't vote on who was making those decisions. Um, and there were a lot of firefighters who were out there protecting our communities who couldn't vote. Um, sure. And and we saw a lot. I'll say, you know, the national attention um, that criminal justice got uh, did work in our favor. Um, it did. It, it accelerated a lot of um, policies or or ideas that we had um, uh, in the criminal justice realm uh, to, to in government. Right, like we saw a capping of parole for three years, uh, something that we had always been working towards. Right, we saw probation being capped. Um, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Go back to go back to parole because you you had a hand in that now. I mean, yeah. you, you put in a lot of work the last couple of years and everybody should know the work that you put in. I was blessed enough to be in a lot of those conversations and do a little bit of work with you. The work that you did in reference to trying to incrementally take bites out of supervision, because we hear about supervision, the harms of supervision, how a lot of supervision targets black and brown people. Tell us a little bit about the what's now three year journey that you've had with trying to end some of the supervision or at least the time frames of supervision and what happened with that. So, you know, Michael Mendoza, a good friend of mine, my partner and partner on the on the legislation, he and I, he called me one day. I was life coaching, told and, and asked me, like, what do you think about reforming parole? And I was like, I would love to. Um, around, this was around the time like I had mentees, people on my case getting violated for being in, in fucking college classes uh, when the parole officer randomly shows up to their house, you know, and it's like you have their their school schedule. Like if the whole idea is to rehabilitate people, why would you violate somebody for being in school? Um, and and uh, for for us, it was like we got to change this. Like it, like you said, I mean, it's it's unregulated. Uh, there's no oversight, um, and, and there are no protections for people on parole. Um, and so we tried to we tried to like you said incrementally change it. Um, starting with expanding the, the radius where people could travel um, so that they, they could look for jobs and, and educational opportunities outside of a 50 mile radius um, and, and visit their families if they, if they were outside of a 50 mile radius. Um, and then also looking at 
not being able to to violate people for frivolous things like being in a college class um and also uh, looking at helping helping um to get them off parole sooner if, if they're doing what they need to do like being in school uh being in vocational training programs working uh volunteering uh do being the 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 quote unquote model person on, on supervision right like um and and my parole officer used to tell me all the time like I, i'm wasting my time with you uh why why do i have to see you and it's like you know it's not my fault you got to see me like i don't want you to see me <laughs> yeah it's like shit um, but but it's really, really, really you wanted it, really you wanted it to mirror what was already going inside of prison. Yeah. You weren't asking to revolutionize or reinvent the wheel. What you were saying is, is that the prison system has created a set of milestones and incentives for people to uh, behave and, and do the right thing. And when they're behaving and doing the right thing, according to the Department of Corrections, then they're rewarded with time off their sentence. Right. And, yeah. and basically what you were saying is a similar situation should happen with people under supervision. Is that if people are handling their business, they're going to school, they're working, they're taking care of their families, they're doing, you know, basically what they're supposed to do in the community, that they should be rewarded as well and decrease the time they should spend on supervision. So it really wasn't that big of an ask and probably should have passed a lot sooner than, than what happened. Yeah, it, it was moving us away from a punitive system to a rewards-based system, one that acknowledges somebody's accomplishments, right? Because I feel like our criminal justice system is constantly so negative, right? So, so it kicks people down. You, we focus on like uh, people's wrongdoings, we focus on the, uh, uh, but we never highlight people's successes, and that's what, what was really behind the bill. Is like we need to highlight and 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 give you know positive reinforcement to the to the accomplishments because because. Finishing a college class on parole is a fucking accomplishment. I mean, finishing a college class for anybody is an accomplishment, but for somebody on parole, like, you know, it's it, 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 the 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 loops and hoops you have to jump through, or, or you know, you should be you should be recognized for that. Um, and and it wasn't, you know, like you said, it was a three year process. Um, we got nobody was doing supervision reform, you know, when Michael and I started it, um, and, and and frankly, nobody cared about it. You know, we didn't get a lot of a, a lot of support around it. We didn't get a lot of, like, you know, people didn't think it was necessary. Um, and and it's and it, you know, great. Thankfully, now you know we cap it. It's capped at three years, right? I think I think we still have more to do um, around parole. Like I will say, um, there's still not a lot of oversight. There's still not a lot of transparency. Um, and and, and there shouldn't, there shouldn't be carve outs either. And there should, should be, yeah, exactly. It, it, it should be based on somebody's. Yeah, it should be. I mean, anything within the criminal justice criminal justice system should be based on the individual. You know, not we shouldn't have blanket policies for people because, like, it's like parenting. Every you parent children differently. Everybody's different. Everybody has their own time. Everybody learns at a different pace. Like, it's everybody's different. You should treat an individual and see that individual, you know, for who they are. Not you know, right? Not, Absolutely. I I don't want to put you on blast, but I do want to talk about something that's very little known in the state for our listeners in 2020. And that's what you worked on in reference to prisoner wages. And it really it really allows us to centralize the issue of firefighters. It allows us to centralize what happens inside the prison environment, the strain it puts on economically to families who have to support their loved ones from the outside. It puts a, a focus on what's happening with you know prison phone calls, canteen prices, package prices, and everything else. And that is the issue of prison wages, right? We hear all the time about eight cents an hour, 10 cents an hour, 15 cents an hour. It's very difficult for people to survive. But more importantly, what struck me is how we position people for release, right? So when people have done 10, 15, 20 years, 
CDC for 50 years has basically kicked people out the door with the same $200 gate money since 1973. And here it is. We ask people after doing life sentences, in essence, to walk through R&R, get a debit card with 150 bucks on it or whatever after they close and then go out there and survive. And they don't they don't really have a mechanism or a space to allow people to stack money or to save money while they're in prison to facilitate an easier transition. Right. Uh, a place to stay initially, automobile, you know, that type of thing. So I want to tell everybody about what the work you did in 2020 around prison wages. So can you share a little bit about what you did, what the name of it was and what's on the horizon with that? Because that's exciting. Yeah. So um, it was a resolution dignity for incarcerated workers. You know, to your point, um, there are so many. I mean, one, I, it, it's inhumane to just treat people and, and pay people um, pennies on the dollar. Um, right. And like, what does that do? Yeah. What is that? But what is that, what does that do to a person's psyche? Right. You know, and, and let's let's also think about, you know, if it's a father or mother who has children on the streets, like how can you how can you care for that child? Right. Like what about intergenerational uh, resentment because of that? Right. Like if you're not able to properly care for your children, um, they're going to resent you. You know, they're going to see you as the deadbeat parent who couldn't, you know, who who was in jail and couldn't couldn't help them at all, couldn't be there, couldn't support them, couldn't send them anything, right? And um, and then let's think about people's reliance on governmental assistance, right? Like over sixty percent of of uh, the bread earners are uh, are in prison. You know, of of the people in prison, like sixty percent of them were the bread earners in their families, um, and so that, that that means they have to rely on governmental assistance. Um, you know, we talked about firefighters and, and but like the biggest beneficiaries of, 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 of prison wages is the state. You know, I, I've had so many calls with 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 foundations and funders and, and they all like, you know, want to uh, with the cancel culture, want to like, oh, well, which which, you know, business should we stop using? Should we should we tell like tell people to, to not go to Starbucks because it and, and it's like well, if we really want to get at the meat and the heart of it, it's every state that benefits the most. From, from 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 prison wages it's not you know any any specific company it's the state over i think it's like 76 percent of, of of um of the profits come from the state um you know and and when covid first broke uh we saw every prison institution scrambling uh to to, to mass produce sanitizer soaps uh you know masks etc um using prison prison labor uh not not affording you know showers not affording extra uh, you know clean spaces because they're not afforded the same worker protections um and then not afforded you know uh, uh any, any kind of uh wage increase um, for working under the conditions that they were working um you know so so for me it's like you, you we're expected to pay restitution um where 55 percent of our paychecks are being you know deducted towards restitution um you're expected to somehow be able to save money to to, to you know, to when you're released, you can have some sort of safety net, but you're making pennies on the dollar. Like you, you can't afford to, for your own, you can't afford your own phone calls. You can't afford even to go to canteen, you know, uh, enough to eat, eat for a month. Um, you can't afford to send money home to your family. Uh, and, and you don't even learn how to budget. Like that's the biggest thing too, right? We're thrown out here and it's like, you know, I see my patients, yeah. I'm like, damn, I lost how much to taxes? Like, I'm just, you know, it's like, oh. Um, and, and so what Dignity for Incarcerated Workers really seeks to do is, is recognize them for being humans, human beings and workers, um, but increases the wages in a, in a way where they can, you know, if they owe alimony, 
they can pay alimony. If they owe child support, they could pay child support. Um, and they can put money aside uh, for, for in a savings so that when they're released, you know, and, and their, their, their state funding runs out for housing, because, you know, that's only three months, six months, if you're lucky, um, you have you have something to fall back on. Um, because it, I always tell people, like, when you see recidivism, those are acts of desperation. That's because we have failed that person. We haven't given that person services. We haven't given that person the, the, the proper. So, exactly. Um, and, and it's like $200 now. You know, I'll give you an example. My boy, um, Ricardo, did 43 years inside. Um, I picked him up, me and my, my, my other boy who, who we did time with. Um, and he's now at ARC as well. We're driving, we go, you know, get him a nice little clothes package, you know, all that stuff. Um, and he was like, don't worry, youngster, like, I got 200 bucks, I'll pay, I'll pay for my phone. And I was like, bro, like, you can't even, I can't even buy a phone with $200 anymore. You know, it's like, <laughs> I was like, keep that, bro, like, right, underwear, right. cause that's what, that's right. probably all you could get, you know? Right. Um, and so it's just, it's it, it, what we, it's just unrealistic to throw people out into society when you're already ostracized, you already have like, these, these tremendous barriers to, to employment and housing um, with, with $200 and think that people are going to make it. Like, it's just, it's unrealistic. And, um, and, and what's amazing too, is I was just looking the other day over at the budget, it's $15.9 billion to CDC and, and general fund and special fund monies this year, right? And so little of that is actually spent on prisoner rehabilitation, transformation services, et cetera. Uh, so we really have to do something better going forward and we people like yourself me and other others have to advocate harder to balance the scales of what those dollar amounts actually look like so in reference to str 69 let's get specific about what we're trying to do in addition to the dignity for workers are we trying to say minimum wage are we trying to say half a minimum wage like it like it used to be what what exactly is the end game for scr 69 well and you touched on the budget point i just want to also also touch on in 2017 pia had a a, a net a gross profit of 70 million dollars wow. you know this is an entity that is supposed to so supposed to be self-sustaining um yet your profit you know it just it goes to you know the, the money is there to give people more money just, wow. <laughs> yeah exactly so um yeah what it seeks to do of course is is raise the wages uh recognize them as as, as you know they should be getting uh the the same the same pay for the if they were working out here i'm not going to say minimum wage because if they're doing uh coding like you know coders don't make minimum wage out here right uh, they make a lot more money so uh, so i think it's 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 about competitive wages um it also seeks to undo uh, uh the notion of of it being modern day slavery right um we want to end involuntary servitude because these are workers and they should be recognized as 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 workers um you know and and, and be 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 paid for it uh, compensated for, for for the work that they do. I mean, every every piece of furniture in the Capitol was made by people incarcerated. Every license plate that you see, you know, it's it's it, and we could go on and on, right? Um, and it's just it's it's so embedded in our in our in our state in every state in our country um, that that we gotta we gotta get rid of it, and we have to we have to we have to recognize uh, human beings for the for for the work that they do. And just just to put this in perspective for people, I mean, it's not just a bunch of guys complain about wages. I mean, we actually know women, uh, our colleagues who have been involved on the front lines doing firefighting work and other things that were underpaid, uh, didn't get paid, 
uh, putting their lives on the line, going to do the work of frontline workers in reference to fighting fires in California. Uh, and so women are deeply affected by this issue too, uh, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I mean, we, we, you know, mothers, right, who can't, who can't take care of their children, uh, who are on the front lines fighting fires, uh, risking their lives, getting paid a dollar an hour. You know, it's, 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 it's uh, uh, blasphemy, to be honest. Like, it's just, absolutely. you know, there's no word, no, no word has enough teeth. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's the truth. So it, let me let me go into a, another piece of it because you know we 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 worked with a lot of orgs and, and done a lot of policy work. Uh, I want to segue that into the role a little bit of women in policy work because a lot of people don't know that women are actually the fastest growing incarcerated population uh, in this country, and oftentimes they get left out of the conversation because central is is the amount of men, and we know that you know men take up ninety percent of the prison system, but a lot of women are suffering as a result of being in prison. As you mentioned, their mothers, their sisters, their wives. And I think 60 to 70 percent of the time I read their crimes that they've committed usually have to do with a man. So what what role or, or how do we centralize more the issue of women when we do policy work in Sacramento, when we advocate for criminal justice reform in general? You, we got to bring them to the table. Um, you know, for me uh, and, and, and she, you know, one of one of my I don't want to say favorite. One of my good friends, uh, mentees, uh, April Grayson, really opened my eyes to this. Right, um, you know, and, and, and similarly, like I, I um, hadn't hadn't understood the differences that we go through as opposed to what they go through. Right, you know, you get one Title Fifteen. They don't have special conditions, special regulations. Like it's like you know, you, women are very different. And one of the first bills I worked on with ARC uh, as it relates to women. Um, uh, ban the 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 ban male correctional officers from being in facilities where they're in, where they're in where they're changing where they're you know dressing out uh, because like you know such a high percentage I, I won't remember the number but such a high percentage of women incarcerated were sexually abused and it's like could you imagine like you had to go you you were sexually abused and then you got you know a, a, a man in, in a position of power you know like watching you like you're you're like a, a itemized you know like you're a piece of meat. It, it's you know it's crazy. Um, when I was at Cut Fifty, one of the one of my favorite bills that I got passed was uh, in in New Jersey. It, it eliminated the shackling of pregnant women, the solitary confinement of pregnant women. Um, it took two years to pass that bill, and I you know I was um, baffled at how you know the responses that we got from legislators. And it's like, these are pregnant women. Like, you know, you're subjecting a, an innocent child uh, to traumas that, you know, that the child doesn't, isn't deserving of, like nobody's deserving of that kind of shit, right? Um, and, and when COVID broke, you know, on the federal level, like there were women, pregnant women um, who caught COVID and died. And it's like, why, why are we, why are we not treating women with more humanity, with more decency, with more, you know, compassion? Um, and, and like you said, like they, a lot of them <clears throat> fell victim to, to, to crimes where, 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 where men were involved. Like a lot of them are, are, are in there for felony murder stuff, you know, and it's it, and it's it's a uh, got to bring more women to the table. That's what that's what it is. We have to we have to centralize more women. We got to we got to bring them more to the table and, and we have to uplift our women. Um, Absolutely. And I, and I think even even to take that one step further, to make sure that we're centralizing directly impacted women. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, we, 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 we want to hear from the women that actually went through it, 
Yeah. Because they, they, they are the closest to those pain points, right? Yeah. And, and they, as you mentioned earlier, so keenly that they're, they're closest to the solutions. So they can, they can inform us about what it is that they went through. They can inform us about how to fix it and what the solutions are. And we need to make sure that, you know, we, we usher them to the front and support uh, with the strength that we have, but definitely allow them to uh, come up with some of these solutions and, and bring them to the table, like you said. Uh, very important to this work. Uh, we can't have effective criminal justice reform unless we include women in that conversation and talk about the issues that affect CIW and, and Chowchilla and, and, and the other places that are holding our women, uh, both in the state and, and federally. So going forward in 2021, I mean, everybody's talked about the Biden-Harris election. Uh, we now have uh, ex-Senator Holly Mitchell down there in LA on the Board of Supervisors. I just read that uh, Kam Lager is, is possibly gonna be running for her seat, Assemblymember uh, Kam Lager who worked on uh, Holly Mitchell's campaign before. What do you see on the horizon amidst the pandemic, amidst what happened with Project Home Key, the releases from prison CDC for the first time now is below 100,000 in a couple of decades. Uh, what are some of the things that you think we can advocate for in 2021, what are some of the uh, spaces that you think will allow us to take advantage or leverage uh, the momentum that we have, uh, especially with the sound defeat of Proposition 20? Uh, shout out to everybody out there in California who saw through the smoke screen of Proposition 20. Uh, what does it look like, Esteban? I mean, you're closer to it than anybody else. I mean, talk to us. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing is is most policies are, are really built off the framework of propositions, right? Like legislators will look at propositions to see where California voters uh, place their priorities and, and where their perspectives lie. Um, the no on Prop 20 um, really, really shows that California voters believe in rehabilitation and believe in investing in rehabilitation. Prop 17, which which was the the proposition that passed with the most yes votes uh, out of any proposition, not not just criminal justice related, um, showed that 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 you know voters do believe in second chances and showed that voters believe um, in, in in a fair democracy. Um, I will. I do. I do think it's you know something that was interesting to me even in Prop 25 is that you saw racial justice being used as a talking point, uh, which has never been done. You know, in in a way to sway voters, right? Like traditionally, it's been the opposite. Um, and I think what that tells us is that we're going to see a lot of racial justice policies this coming year, right? Um, I know for sure we're going to see. Senator Bradford's decertification bill uh, come up, which will decertify, you know, law enforcement. Um, uh, uh, Assembly Member Re Reggie Jones Sawyer has a has a piece of legislation that um, would require all law enforcement agencies to only hire people with a bachelor's degree or, or some or, or if they're 25 years old. Um, right. You know, so I do think last year we we after the George Floyd um, after the George Floyd passing of George Floyd, we 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 saw. Um, the bare minimum of legislation get passed in California. We banned chokeholds. That's it. I mean, that's all we did. Um, you know, we we I would love to see a mental health strike team that accompanies first responders. You know, on, on those types of calls because a lot of these um, are, are 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 because you know law enforcement officers aren't equipped to deal with mental mental health outbreaks. You know, or mental health instabilities. Like they're not. That's not what they're trained. They're, they're not equipped to deal deal with a whole lot of things. <laughs> right. I, I don't want I don't want to get into it. But yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. 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 Like. Um, 
so I, I think we're going to see a lot of racial justice stuff in the, in this coming year. We're going to see a lot of criminal justice reforms, like big ideas that, that we probably wouldn't have thought of last year, right? Like sure. monumental changes. Um, and, and, and some of those being like digging for incarcerated workers, right? Ending involuntary servitude, um, you know, um, more educational opportunities and employment opportunities for, for formerly incarcerated people. Um, and, and those are efforts that we are, are currently working on. Um, so I'm excited about this coming year because I think it's 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 something it's something that we've never seen before, right? Like I've, you've never seen racial justice being a talking point that fucking bail agents have used, you know, to sway voters, right? <laughs> and, and you've also you've also never seen district attorneys get on the bandwagon oh. of criminal justice reform. I mean, we we'd be remiss to get off of this That's get true. off of this uh, conversation without talking about just the monumental gall audacity that uh, Gasson, uh, LA's district attorney, the largest district attorney's office in the country, uh, just put down in the last 48 hours. Can you, can you touch on that just a little bit? What I'll say is like, that's true leadership. Somebody who has the wherewithal to stand out and say, this is what I'm doing. You know, like regardless of public opinion, regardless of how people- well, What's he doing? What's he doing, Esteban? You gotta let people know what is he doing, man? What, what, he, what is he, he, he doing? I mean, he is, uh, going to resentence. I, I think it's what it was like 40% of the people that were sentenced out of, out of no County. Enhancement. He's killing uh, off enhancements, right? Kill, exactly. All I can know of all the enhancement, which no I, right. I know everybody in, in prison is doing enhancement time. Like the people right. finish the base term. So it's like, right. can you imagine how many people are going to be coming home uh, and in the death practicing of the death penalty, right? Um, bail, doing stuff around bail, ending bail for, for people with uh, 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 misdemeanors and, 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 and some uh, minor felonies and no three uh, strikes law. No three strikes law like that. Like he he's everything that you and I have worked on in the past. You know, however many years um, he's taken, and it's his platform right now and putting it into practice. But how, you know, how, uh, how big is that? For not, the rest not, of the state not even charging juveniles under eighteen as adults. Like right. I, we gotta say, like that is huge, huge, right? Like recognizing that juveniles are juvenile are kids and that they have a, a greater likelihood and opportunity to to change. They're amenable. They're, they're impressionable. Um, and that, that like, I mean, it's historical, something we've never seen before, right? It really sets the, it really sets the table for, for 2021 because, you know, LA is so big. We know that the way LA goes, typically the way the state goes, and it's now just not a Bay Area thing for progressive to push issues for people that live up here like we do now. Uh, I'm from LA, and so to see LA take this turn from being as conservative as it has been, getting Jackie Lacey out of there, who was responsible for locking up, you know, so many black and brown people. Uh, I think it's just exciting what's on the horizon uh, for 2021, the possibilities that now exist with both what's happening nationally and then both what's happening on the statewide level. Before you go, though, I'd like for you to tell, talk a little bit about your plans, ARC's plans uh, for the future, to talk about how you're looking at things from a national perspective. And can we take this thing nationally as a community and, and what can we do to help bring people home, help uh, reintegrate people back into the community in a positive way? Um, yeah, I don't think we have enough time to talk, talk about all this stuff that we see <laughs> wants to do. Um, but what I'll say is, 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 you know, everything that we do on a local level, on a statewide level, we, 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 we plan on taking national, you know, um, voting rights for, for, for formerly incarcerated and currently incarcerated people is something we want to continue doing. Um, but, but not only that, also analyzing, uh, how how the formerly incarcerated vote matters, right? And and amplifying that, sure. um, be, because I think it's it's an untapped 
uh, electoral uh, power that, that we haven't really harnessed, right? Um, but but outside of that, looking like how we charge youth, Miranda rights for for youth um, is something we're working on nationally, and and we you saw it with Bradford's bill last year passed SB two hundred three. Um, we're taking that to the national level. Uh, uh, Congressman Cardenas is the one uh, is authoring it. Um, uh, also looking at you know the closing the DJJ. How, how do we continue to do that? Uh, and continue to afford youth services, and, and and how do we do that across the country? Right. Um, also looking at like I said, the decertification stuff is something we're going to be working on. Um, but also economic justice. So fines and fees for for people. Um, you know, as you know, they accru like the interest accrues, and it's something like how do, how can people ever uh, deteriorate that that barrier and climb an economic ladder if they're forced to to, to fork over you know fifty five percent of their their paycheck or twenty percent of their paycheck from the F to the FTB you know, um, and 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 so economic justice is a huge piece of it, and that falls into the dignity for incarcerated workers part two right, um, uh, and that's something we're we're not only working on on, on a state level but we're also going to take national. And I've had uh, conversations with Congresswoman Karen Bass, who chairs the Congressional Black Caucus, about this, and um, she was astounded when when she 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 found out about this and how it how it goes on a federal level. Um, you know, for me personally, uh, like I said earlier, I, I don't know. You know, I don't know what the future holds for me, but um, I do know that I will always, in some inclination, have 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 my foot in this because uh, this is this is important to me. It's, you know, as a child, I used to always wonder uh, what my what my um, what my role in life would be, you know, uh, what my purpose is. Um, now, I, now I know, you know, and it's and it's this work, and it's and it's empowering and, uh, our people, and it's and it's really shedding light on the injustices that have occurred for fucking since the dawn of history, but uh, dawn of time. Well, you got to make me one promise because we did we didn't get everything in today, but you got to promise to come back and spend time with me and the audience and talk about uh, these issues. And, and maybe as early as January, February, we can reassess what bills are introduced and, and look at what's happening in the legislature. Uh, in the meantime, I just really want to appreciate you for extending your time and your space and talking to us about uh, the landscape of California criminal justice reform and telling us about your story, man. It was huge, super huge. Uh, you, you did everybody a service, you know, and, and we really appreciate you coming to spend some time with us and we look forward to having you again. Yeah, no, definitely. I uh, look forward to coming back on. You know, I'll, I'll always. Appreciate I'll you. Bro. Take care, brother. Yeah, you too, bro. Thank you for listening to The Prison Post, a production of The Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice, so please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our videocast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.